Each of us probably has several distinctive words that describe us. They may be words having something to do with our jobs, our roles, our place in our family structures, our personalities. Think about a word that describes you in action. Today's passage describes God in action. In our day-to-day lives, we don't usually get a sense of what God is doing. God at work, and often we only glimpse him afterwards in the rearview mirror, but more often than not, we can't really puzzle out what is he up to. But today the veil is parted and we see what God is doing. So as we go through this passage, think of what words you would use to describe God based on what we are reading. Our passage is in the great prophet Isaiah. And it starts with what can only be called a psalm of thanksgiving in the first five verses. And it seemed appropriate for this month of November. So we start in verse 21, Isaiah 25, I'm sorry, Isaiah 25, verse 1. Isaiah 25, 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. O Lord, you are my God. I guess the descriptor of God that makes the most difference in this whole passage comes from that very first phrase, God is my God. There's so many people who do not know God as my God. But the anchor for this passage is an unshakable connection with the Almighty God, which guarantees us relationship within which we are secure. And within that relationship of child to Heavenly Father, we are also responsible because with responsibility, I mean with privilege, comes responsibility. Now, in our family relationships, I tend to think of us as occasional toddlers or teenagers or midlife crisis adults or adults behaving badly. We all do this throughout our lives, at least a little bit, every once in a while. We might test our boundaries. Maybe we step over the line. Maybe we do a fair bit of whining. Or perhaps we simply are unaware of our privilege and we find ourselves using it irresponsibly, selfishly, only for our own benefit instead of for others. Now, certainly the people of Israel had thumbed their nose at at God. They had wholeheartedly disobeyed him, distanced themselves. They disowned God by worshiping other gods. They had gone on a rant. They had melted down. They had deliberately hurt God. They had behaved very poorly. So what do you do when you get into trouble? Do you own up to it right away? Or do you deny it? Do you lie about it? Do you run away? Do you nurse your anger? Do you double down? God talked to his people a long time through the prophets about their heart, about their action, about the consequences. God warned them over and over again. And finally, God told them that judgment was coming their way. God was going to bring down the hammer. He was going to send them into exile in order to bring them to their senses and in order to bring them back to himself. So at this point in the book of Isaiah, 
the prophet had already prophesied plenty about the judgment of God, which was going to fall on the Israelites. God was going to use the surrounding nations to subdue Israel, and those enemy nations were going to inflict hardship and horror on the people of Israel. And because of that, they too, those enemy nations, were going to fall under God's judgment. And if we want to get an idea of the terrifying pending judgment, we could just flip back a page in our Bibles to the previous chapter, which starts in verse 1. Now the Lord is about to lay waste the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surfaces and scatter its inhabitants. And it just kind of gets worse from there. So our passage, chapter 25, has the flames of judgment licking at it from the edges. Chapter 25 is an oasis in the middle of a very grim picture. And how centering is it to humbly, repentantly come back to God, to the place where we can say, oh God, you are my God. No matter the storm, no matter the chaos which surrounds us, no matter the daily bad news or the uncertain future, no matter the sin which has put a wedge between us, coming back to a right relationship of beloved child to our Heavenly Father. Oh God, you are my God. God always takes us back after our tantrums. That's, that's how good he is. And it is God's desire to pull us close because that's where we're safest, within his embrace. And every time we come to God, we will be forgiven. We will be delivered. We will be saved. That quiet, centered heart can then rejoice in praise. Oh, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. This is a joyful celebration of life and deliverance that comes from the Lord. And even before the fulfillment of those plans, we have joy that turns to praise because of who God is. So this is what we see about God in action. Just in that first verse alone, God is my God. God is the doer of wonderful things. God is a planner. He has strategized. He has thought it all out. God is faithful and sure. And it's important to us that we know that God's plans are formed of old. These ancient plans Guarantee God's steadfast faithfulness and his victory against adversaries. God will accomplish his salvation plans, even if it seems to his people that he is delaying a long time. So now, after that comfort of praise and assurance, the prophet can delineate some of those plans. Verse 2, for you have made a city, the city a heap the fortified city, a ruin. The palace of aliens is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. This city is not named. What did the writer have in mind? There are many candidates from the enemy nations surrounding Israel. It could be the great city of Nineveh. It could be the great city of Babylon, the seats of power of the enemies of Israel. But why wasn't it named? Many people see this verse not just 
an application to the people of Israel at that time, but a prophecy to generations after. One commentator said it was the city of chaos whose destruction symbolizes the end of the old order of violence and pride. Hmm. Verse 3. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. God is so glorious that even people who are set against him will have to glorify him. God is above all other powers. He will be acknowledged even by his enemies. And now notice a distinction between that old order of violence and chaos and the new order where God rules. Verse 4, for you, O God, have been a refuge to the poor. A refuge to the needy in their distress. A shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rainstorm, the noise of aliens like heat in a dry place, you subdued the heat with a shade of clouds. The song of the ruthless was still. God is refuge. God is shelter. God is shade. Hear this word, you listeners who first listened to this word and who lost everything in exile. And hear this word now, you who are poor, you who are powerless, you who have been buffeted by events, by other people, by a system that is designed to grind you down here. All you who are in need and run to God and find in him, your refuge, your shelter, your shade. Find him and do not fear the blast of any storm, the blast of any heat. For generations upon generations have found it true that God is the best refuge, the best shelter, the best shade. And if he is that for you, you are safe. Now, the lottery. Let's talk about the lottery. Over, over $2 billion, the winning lottery ticket was sold last week right here in Altadena, less than two miles away from us right now. And in my household, that money felt so physically close that we had to tell each other what would we do if we held the winning ticket with all of that. Now, was that just us, or did some of you imagine a little bit about that money? I texted Leon White, who was even closer to the winning ticket, and I told him, don't forget the church in your winnings, Leon. And several Altadenans have told me that they received calls from friends far away about that ticket. But that lottery winner is not as rich as the poor, needy, damaged person who makes God their refuge. Two billion dollars does not compare to the security that we find in God. $2 billion does not give you the lasting peace that you can find only in the God of glory, our Savior. 
God is refuge, shelter, shade to us. We have three more verses in our passage, but before we continue, let me ask you, since Thanksgiving is right around the corner, what you would need on the table in order to make it truly a feast. What is the dish that has to be on the table in order to make it a feast for you? Turkey, mac and cheese, green bean casserole, a a broccoli cheese casserole. Oh, I might come to your house. What? Turkey. Mm -hmm. Shrimp. Oh, this is too loud, too hot. Shrimp. We have never, that's my mom talking. We have never had shrimp on the Thanksgiving table. Bread. Oh, rolls. You can't, oh, yes, bread. I love bread. What? Sweet potato pie, did you say? Sweet potato pie. Yeah. Curried chicken. Curried chicken. That's in that's in your tradition. What? What? Oh, dressing and turkey wings. Okay. All right. Now, do you have that picture in your mind? You have that picture of everything, like just imagine everything that we put, including the turkey, I mean the curry and the shrimp on the communion table. You see that feast? Okay, now we're ready to read the rest of the passage. Verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. Yum, yum. No one here mentioned marrow. And why did no one mention the wine, really? Oh, we're at church. Um, Notice, I actually thought that communion had turned to wine in our little cups last week. I don't know about you, but anyway. Um, both of those, the marrow and the wine that is described, is just like the, the extra oomph on a feast that you have to have in order for it to be luscious and big and delicious. Both of those paint a picture of overabundance. And notice that the Lord is, God is the Lord of hosts. Now, whenever we see hosts, the Lord of hosts in the Bible, it means Host means army. So we think of God as the head of the army of angels, is what that title says of him. And notice that God is the chef who prepares the feast and sets it before all peoples. So God is the other kind of host, too, the kind who welcomes you in, who opens the door to the banquet hall and invites everyone in. Verse 7, and he will swallow on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow, this is the exact same word at, at the end of the sentence as it is at the beginning, he will swallow up death forever. Oh, the imagery of this passage, of this prophecy. We move from a banquet in which we are given choice food to swallow to the image of God 
swallowing. And what does he swallow? The feast? No, the shroud, the sheet, death. God will swallow some kind of covering that is described as a shroud or a sheet that is spread over all the peoples. Some people think these coverings refer to spiritual blindness. And some people think it refers to a veil of mourning that that you used to wear when you were in mourning, a veil. I guess, did men wear a veil? I, I feel like it was only women, but some people think it was like a veil of mourning. But the word shroud here may also be used for the smaller burial cloth that is wrapped around the face of the corpse. And the word translated sheet here can also be used of a larger burial cloth that was wrapped around the body. God swallows up death itself. What? That is a reaction of the first listeners of the... What is the prophet saying? The first listeners, they understood that death swallows everything up. Death swallows everything. Isaiah 5, 14 says, Therefore Sheol, that's a word for death, has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude go down. Hebrews 2.8 says, Moreover, wealth is treacherous. The arrogant do not endure. They open their throats as wide as Sheol. Like death, they never have enough. Death swallows up everything good. Eventually, death destroys everything and everyone, and there's no way to avoid this destruction by death. It's inevitable, and it is final. This is what the first listener would have been thinking about, except, Isaiah says, except God's mouth is bigger than the mouth of death, and in a shocking reversal, God swallows up death. Now, this was a brand new revelation of God's salvation plan. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we see a glimpse of a time when death itself is no more. It's only here in this chapter of Isaiah. Now, for us, after Jesus' death, this is a more familiar truth, which doesn't make it any less amazing. Surely the prophet Paul drew on this passage in Isaiah, seeing it fulfilled through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those first listeners didn't know that the way God would swallow up by death would be by sending his son to die, to earth, to experience death himself and destroy it that way. Verse 8 in our passage, then God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. God wipes away tears. Surely the apostle John knew this passage in Isaiah when he wrote in Revelations 21, verse 4, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. There has been so much death. The weight of grief, the searing loss of loved ones, the sadness, God knows He does not turn his face away when we are at our lowest. 
and look how important our tears are to God. And look at how close, how intimate he is, not on a stage speaking to us from up high, not even in the same room with us, but within arm's reach. If God is wiping away my tears, he has to be close enough. If you are in grief today, can you imagine that day? When God wipes away the tears from all faces. Verse 9, it will, be told, it will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. The wait is so very long, isn't it? But someday in the future, we, or maybe the next generation, or maybe the next generation, someday we will receive the completed and perfect fulfillment of this prophecy. And in the meantime, we rejoice in God the Savior who reveals his heart, he reveals his purposes, he reveals his plans of old, he reveals his faithfulness to us through the prophet Isaiah, but most of all through his son, Jesus Christ. So this joy of praise is real now, and it's just a foretaste of joy in his presence. What is God up to? This is our God. Let's bow our heads. Well, Lord, we bring our tears to you. There have been a lot of them through the years, through the seasons of life. We bring our tears to you because they're important to you. And we look at you and we are amazed at you. And we praise you. And we need you to be for us our refuge, a shelter, a shade, comforter, helper, savior, wiper away of the tears, death crusher, glorious, we need you to be our chef. I want to eat that meal that you prepare for all peoples. We need you to be our tear wiper. So we invite you. We invite you in. In your name we pray. Amen.